0: Welcome to the Distinctive Christianity Podcast, where we clarify distinctions between Mormonism and creedal Christian thought. I'm Brendan, and I'm here with... Skyler. Skyler. Man, we got the full name. It's going to be a (laughs) serious sort of a day today. Oh, man. Good to have y'all with us. Uh, You know, we figured it'd be good to do some icebreaker sort of stuff and... I mean, I you know, I feel I feel like I I know you somewhat, Skylar, but I don't I don't know you. I don't know yeah. you.
1: We never competed. And there's some basketball. really
0: important questions that I need to know about your life. You know, like your favorite holiday memory, or oh, no. <laughs> you know, what's the best part of waking up, or what's your favorite TV show, or you know, <laughs> some of the essentials like when it comes to friendship. So, uh, yeah. Okay. Well, what's your favorite TV show? Oh man. I don't know. True. Truthfully. Um, I go back and forth on what I like.
1: How about (sighs) two or three? I feel, I feel very pressured right now. I I, totally same. (laughs) it's like, we can't, we can't stop talking about the virgin birth as everyone <laughs> oh knows from last goodness. episode but I here's mine it's a it's kind of niche John Cleese's Faulty Towers okay never seen it it's hilarious yeah i'm so bummed it didn't keep going
0: yeah yeah i i man i am not like a major get into film and tv shows on a deep deep level sort of a guy same here I usually watch stuff to zone out for a sec. <laughs> <laughs> That's
1: what sports are for me.
0: <laughs> so I, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what I mean. I don't know. So okay, how about this? May, maybe if I could say I here. Let Let me qualify this because my wife and I are, are show editors. You know, we we skip through scenes in shows. <laughs> When we're like, okay, we're not gonna watch this, and sometimes we skip entire episodes if it looks like uh, that one's not gonna be filterable in any good sense. With that said, I mean probably my favorite show, the one I enjoyed the most, was The
1: Office. I got you. Yeah, I, I'm. I live with the, the Office lovers. Yeah, the yeah. the
0: character development is so rich mm-hmm. in that show. That that would probably be it for me. Okay, you know, if I was pinned down, I'm like, "Hey, give me one." So, (laughs) yeah, that wasn't the question I was going to ask today. Okay, I feel like like we've exhausted our discussion on personal preferences here. Yeah, we're bad at this part. We're feeling very flustered. Totally having to open up our life to, you know, trillions of listeners out there. (laughs) (laughs) After last episode. We'll see how many we have oh, left. Uh, I know. Listen, the last episode is pretty intense, and we knew that it was going to be. I mean, that's one of the more contentious issues that's out there, but it's one that is very important to be clear on because, for sure. you know, as as credo Christians, we hold to the the creeds, uh, obviously, and every Christian creed in the lineage has made clear a belief on the virgin birth, and uh, of course we talked about some of the importance of that from a credo-christian perspective. But, uh, you know, I, I find that that's one of the issues that can get some of the LDS folks that I talk to the most fired up, and mm-hmm. uh I, I, again, I don't know the reason. I think sometimes there's just not a... uh willingness to deal with some of the earlier teachings. Um, I think other times there's also this sense in which uh, revelation is changing all the time within LDS thought and belief. And so they're not perhaps required to hold to something uh, that was original. Mm -hmm. But again, we talked about how a lot of these things are still still there in the deepest parts. So maybe not the deepest, but you, you know, if it's happening mm-hmm. in the temple, it's yeah, in one of their most sacred places. Yep. So,
1: yeah, well, I hope they know we we're we're saying this cause we care.
0: Yeah. And we'd like to have, we're, we're, I mean, yeah. we're opening discussion, you know, for and, sure. And, uh, we also want to, uh, um, evangelical Christian listeners to be able to engage with LDS people and ask good questions and yes. things like that. And, uh, We really want engagement from LDS folks too. Like we Mm -hmm. don't, uh, we don't. We're not just trying to uh, take on the label of anti-Mormon, so to speak, and uh, make as many people angry as we possibly can. We do want to speak the truth as Mm -hmm. we see it revealed in the Bible, and we're not ashamed of that. You know, we we want to speak the truth clearly, Um, but of course, we are understanding and would hope that uh, many people wouldn't start just taking on a religious pluralistic view like lots have and just want everyone to be nice to everyone and nobody to be concerned with truth. And I think that's a lot of what we see happening. So For sure. Anyways, that has nothing to do with what we're talking about today. So (laughs) I I don't know how, boy, just burning time here. (laughs) Burning time. Today we are going to be looking at the... uh, Next lesson in the Come Follow Me manual, and just kind of walking through and comparing and contrasting different beliefs uh, within that. And again, kind of there, there's two purposes with us doing it this way. One, for evangelical Christians out there, it helps you get a good taste of what street level uh, LDSism is and what it's teaching. Um, you know, it, it, I think that's helpful just because if you have. Uh, LDS family or friends or people that you're coming into contact with, uh, you know what they're going through on their weekly lessons and hopefully can engage them in conversation, ask some questions about that, uh, get to know what their thoughts are and the things that they're studying and learning. Um, And so it's beneficial from that perspective. And then if uh, we have LDS listeners out there, it's helpful because you're getting to hear how we would as credo Christians interpret these things differently. And so you're getting to hear our perspective, which hopefully helps you to engage with credo Christians and be able to have good, um, intellectual, intentional, religious conversation, which I find all these people love that yeah. kind of stuff. Generally speaking, mm-hmm. living here in Utah, it's not difficult to get into good religious conversations. And, uh, I hope we're all doing that in an interest of the truth once again, and, uh, that being the driving force behind it. All right, so let's get into it. Uh, This week is Matthew 2 and Luke 2, and uh, this will be the material that will be used in LDS wards from January 9th to the 15th for that week. And we're going to hit some highlights in both the – well, we actually going to have a few extra things that will hopefully pop in into the show that are parts of other aspects of LDS life. But – For the sake of brevity, right now we're going to look at the uh, teacher manual for the Sunday school lesson, so what they'll be using on Sunday mornings together, and then we will look really quickly at some of the uh, points that are worth pointing out in the family and individual manual, which is a different manual that has the same passages of Scripture driving the conversation, but families are encouraged to study together, or you as an individual are encouraged to study this stuff throughout the week. Okay. Hopefully I won't have to say that every single week, but I figure as we're getting feet on the ground, it's good to make those explanations for anybody who's tuning in for the first time. So the uh, title of this lesson, Matthew 2, Luke 2, is We Have Come to Worship Him. And we're going to come back to that and talk about it a little bit. Uh, You do have a note at the beginning, which is helping teachers out saying, to record your spiritual impressions on these passages. And then it says, this will help you receive revelation on how to best meet the needs of your class. So there's this encouragement to read the text so that you can receive revelation. Um, We'll make some just brief distinctions there here in a minute. And then you got the invite sharing part again, and they do change that up a little bit, but uh, it's pretty much the same every week. It's just saying invite sharing in the class. Um, and there's a point in that, that I think is actually, uh, good in some senses. And they say, though they're, though they're, though they are likely familiar with the accounts of the Savior's birth in Matthew two and Luke two, they can always gain new spiritual insights is what they encourage teachers to invite sharing for. Like, what are the new insights that you've been gaining? Um, I'll just say right off the front, I read that. I was like, yes, you know, we see, God's Word, yes, is having this central objective meaning, but every time that we come to the text, we want to bring our our heart, soul, mind to the text and ask, what is it, God, that you need to do with my heart right now? Mm-hmm. What you know, I, I, As I dig into understanding what this text means, which of course is going to be a bit of a distinction, like we talked about in the first episode between us and the way LDS people approach the scriptures, but even still, as I understand the meaning, what is it that I'm struggling with in my life, What is what sin is there, what are my life circumstances, what are the things that you need to do on my heart from me discovering, you know, or being reminded of what the truth of this text is teaching. For sure. Um, so yeah, we are we are bringing ourselves, you know, to the text in that sense, um, and we're meeting with God in the text itself. Um, then you get into the teach the doctrine section, and it starts by Really encouraging you to kind of cover two passages at the same time, and they're bouncing back and forth between Matthew and Luke. So Matthew two one to twelve and Luke two one to thirty eight. Matthew two one to twelve is the passage on the uh, three wise men. I don't know if anybody will catch that. That's actually inaccurate what I just said because we don't know <laughs> if there was three. Uh, blowing people's perceptions up right now. But uh, yeah, that's the passage on the wise men who come to see Jesus, and uh, then it's talking about Luke two one to thirty eight, which is Luke's introductory uh, kind of remarks on the actual birth of Jesus happening. So uh, you know, Joseph and Mary having to go to the town of Bethlehem, uh, the angels revealing the birth of Jesus to the shepherds and to the shepherds, and then Jesus being presented at the temple, uh, all this is included in the passage that's being discussed here. And the main point is the, there are many witnesses to the birth of Jesus. Uh, so these passages, according to this manual, can help your class members ponder the ways they show their love for the Savior. Uh, we may come back to that as well and talk a bit about that. But it also says, why Why is it significant that these witnesses of Christ came from various walks of life? how can we follow their examples so you do continue to see a you know way of dealing with the scripture where we're looking for the action that we need to put to it you know what is the example we need to follow and uh, then it also says in this section before these witnesses worshiped the Christ child they sought after him so it makes this point that uh, yes they came and they worshiped this Christ child but they sought after him before that so we We may talk a little bit about that and some distinctions we'd make there. All right, and then it moves on to Matthew 2, uh, verses 13 to 23. And that is kind of a, a, a beautiful text, really, that is covering the events that happened after the birth of Jesus. And specifically, it's talking about the flight to Egypt, that they had to make because of Herod's rampage and Herod killing all the children um, in Bethlehem, and then uh, eventually they returned to Nazareth. So that's what that uh, scripture is and the details of it. Now, here's the main heading here for the teaching: Parents can receive revelation to protect their families. Uh, so that's the main idea that is you're supposed to get out of that passage of scripture. Uh, is that parents can receive revelation to protect their families? So we'll we'll talk about, about that some uh, once we get back to it. And then Luke 2, 40 to fifty two is the next one, and that's about Jesus in the temple, you know, having all the conversations and impressing everybody with his teaching. And the main heading there is even as a youth, Jesus was focused on doing his father's will. Okay, uh, I would say yes, that's what. Luke is getting after is that Jesus, from the earliest age, is doing the will of the Father. Yes, um, That's important, and we can talk about why that's important here in a little bit. But then the next line after the heading, the first line of the actual paragraph to, to kind of break down the significance of that teaching, is this. The story of Jesus teaching in the temple when he was only 12 years old can be especially powerful to youth who wonder about the contribution they can make To the work of God, and so then the rest of that section is about children and youth making a contribution to the work of God. Uh, Again, Jesus is kind of this example setter, and that's the primary emphasis of what's understood about him here, in many ways. And there is one final quote at the end of that under the additional researches that I think is worth reading in full. President Stephen L. or Stephen J. Lund, sorry. Described the children and youth program, which I mean what what is that referring to, Skylar? The you children and youth
1: program. You know, just, I'm I'm not entirely sure. Yeah, maybe it, the Sunday it, yeah, children and youth like, stuff. I think they've changed it since I left, but it used to be like you had a primary program. Yeah, that's the
0: reference. It's talking about primary Okay, and probably just some of the other programs yeah, going mm-hmm, on. For the youth. Children and youth is a tool to help every primary child and youth. To grow in discipleship and to gain a faith-filled vision of what the way of happiness looks like. They can come to anticipate and yearn for the way, for the way stations and signposts along the covenant path. I don't know what that means. They can come to anticipate and yearn for the way
1: stations and signposts along the covenant path. Maybe that's part of the program. Well, like the that. covenant path is kind of ties into what we were talking about last time. I think yeah. it's the new word for their plan of salvation is the yeah, other melt toast yeah, yeah. word it gets but, to
0: breaking it down yeah. where they will be baptized and confirmed with the gift of the Holy Ghost and soon belong to quorums and young women classes where they will feel the joy of helping others through a succession of Christ-like acts and service they will set goals large and small that will bring balance to their lives as they become more like the Savior so uh, they're they're consistent right? with mm. this emphasis yes. on uh, doing things like Jesus and that being kind of the big learning points within the text. Now, there are exceptions to that. And there's ex- exceptions that I find to be somewhat you know, hope-filled and encouraging. Um, and most of those I've been finding in the individual and family manual. Uh, so there's the reflection on Luke 2, 1-7 to in that, Uh, individual and family manual, which the subheading is Jesus Christ was born in humble circumstances. And it says, although Jesus Christ had glory with God, the father before the world was, he was willing to be born in lowly circumstances and live among us on earth. And then it says, as you read Luke two, one to seven, ponder what this account of his birth teaches you about him. Try to identify details or insights in this story that you hadn't noticed before. How does noticing these things affect your feelings towards him? I hear that kind of thing. I'm like, that's good. You know, it's actually encouraging uh, readers to ponder what this text teaches you about Jesus. That's it, right? Yes. That's what you should be doing with every single Mm -hmm. text. Ponder what this teaches you about Jesus. And then how does Jesus change you? Yes. You know, in light of that. So there's gleanings of light within this from an evangelical Christian, credo Christian perspective. Um, there's, you know, some other highlights that go on there, but most of the individual and family manual is pretty similar uh, to the Sunday school teaching. The uh, There's a section on the witnesses, of the birth of Christ, parents can re- receive revelation, youth should follow the example. And then there's one final note that's important for uh, creedal Christians, evangelicals to to understand and that's that under the last section there even as a youth jesus was focused on doing his father's will there is a question of what else do you learn from the example of jesus's childhood in luke 2 40 to 52 and in the joseph smith translation of matthew 3 24 to 26 now There's not any significant changes in that translation, but it is just an interesting note to a lot of evangelical Christians who may not know this, that Joseph Smith, um, because plain and precious things were lost in the Bible, he put those things back in, in the Joseph Smith translation. Um, That's basically what
1: that translation is. Yep, it's him. Really, it's adding, adjusting, taking out. Um, It's not a translation, should be said first right. and foremost. Yeah,
0: it's how, how would you? What is a translation?
1: It, it, right, using the original languages, right. um, which he didn't know. Though you know, he may have studied a little bit of Hebrew to be dangerous, as you can tell from his later sermons, where he's like, "Elohim" oh, is a plural word. Yeah, yeah. So, a sheep and deer that doesn't mean much. So, it's it's like a very infantile knowledge of Hebrew that he actually exhibits. But he really, it should be called the Joe Smith version. And I think there's even Mormon scholars that have pointed that out. Yeah.
0: Uh, one just interesting uh, note <laughs> that I would make on the JST, and uh, this is a bit of a challenge to LDS people out there that I've I've asked folks about before and I haven't seen any good responses to this. Maybe you even know some of the good responses to this, but um, – in the JST, this has nothing to do with the lesson here. It just has to do with this is the first time we're bringing up the JST. We're bringing JST. up the JST, yep. Uh, but in the JST, Joseph Smith updated significant portions of Isaiah mm-hmm. and said plain and precious things were lost. Now, scholar, when were plain and precious things lost on a historical timeline of the world?
1: Well, I, well, they, they, I guess it depends. Depends on who, according, you ask. according but to it has to be f- relative. In the Book of Mormon narrative, it's relative to the Great and Abominable Church of the Devil, right? Which, which, for most commentators, were was the Roman Catholic Church, and that of course included us, right? As Pl-
0: plain like, and precious things were lost, yeah, uh, in what is considered the Great Apostasy, yes, right. So in the early Church era, everything's right the way that it should be. The, uh, the LDS belief is that the, uh, the, the, the church was, you know, essentially as, that's the whole idea of the restored church, right? Which is what Joseph Smith claims that he came to do, is to restore the church to what it was in its early church days. The great apostasy happened after that point. And so Joseph Smith is called as a prophet of God to restore plain and precious things. So he does that in many ways, including in the JST which is even claimed in this book that that's what the JST is for, is to restore these plain and precious things. He updates lots of things in the Isaiah scroll, says that you know these things were removed, taken out, messed up, uh, post-Great Apostasy. Okay, our date on that po- Great Apostasy has to be post-1st century AD. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, of course, in 1947, we have the Dead Sea Scrolls that were discovered. Yes the Dead Sea Scrolls had multiple full Isaiah scrolls in them. The dating for the Dead Sea Scrolls is the 3rd century BC. So we found Isaiah scrolls from the 3rd century BC, and those scrolls aligned almost perfectly with what we have in our Protestant Bibles. Mm-hmm. So the claim that, you know, plain and precious things were removed in the first century AD is patently false, based on the historical fact that we have discovered scrolls that predate that time, that show us that the text we have of Isaiah is right and accurate. Uh, It's amazing when it comes to the preservation of the scriptures. Um, And the fact that, I mean, Joseph Smith was just flat out wrong. And, uh, and so the challenge is, can you trust the JST at all? Should you trust the JST at all? If you have things like that that definitively show that Smith was wrong. Um, you know, that's just a side note.
1: I don't know if you have anything you want to add there. I, I can hold off on yeah. plenty of things I want to say. Yeah, yeah. All right,
0: well, let's jump back into some of the lesson itself and, and make some discussion. And I, I really want to ask a question – um just to get some of your thoughts on the very beginning of the lesson in Matthew 2 and Luke 2 they titled the lesson we have come to worship him that is something that as evangelical Christians we would want to highlight is the significance and importance of coming to worship Jesus You know, the main thrust of the text, especially in the wise men passage, which I think is where they're drawing that from, is the wise men travel and they come and they say, we've come to worship the king. Uh, That's why they have arrived. So, which is fascinating because the Jews who should have worshipped, right, in that text, who should have worshipped Jesus, didn't. They didn't recognize that he was who he said he was um, or that he had arrived, but somehow these Gentiles did, which I think is Matthew showing that the gospel's for the Gentiles as well. But there's this idea put forward at the very beginning, we have come to worship him. And what came to mind as I was reading that uh, is a couple things, but the main thing is why. Uh, What is the why behind the worship? I would ask that to credo Christians. Why do you worship him? I would ask that to... uh, LDS, why do you worship him? You know, people out here in Utah love their business books. And there's a best-selling business author, Simon Sinek, and he wrote a book entitled Start With Your Why. And here's a quote from that book that uh, I think is actually a good quote and it's good to think about. He says, very few people or companies can clearly articulate why they do what they do, Okay. So we know we do the what of worship, and we can talk about the distinctions between the what. But I want to ask the why. Why they do what they do. But why, cynic says, uh, by why I mean your purpose. what your why. is: Cause or belief. Why does your company exist? Why do you get out of bed in the morning? And why should anyone care? And he says this, which I think is a provoking thought. People don't buy what you do. They buy why you do it. Let's just say, uh, which we're not, we're, but in a sense, right? We're, we, we sell our religion. We, we try to persuade people why they should worship the way that we worship. Uh, we're not just giving them the what, you know? Uh, we, we, we convince people in the deepest sense by having them answer the question of why. Um, so I, I'm curious to hear your thoughts, Skylar, and I know that there's a spectrum, but what what is the why? And what was maybe the why in your mind and heart, in your LDS background, the why of the worship?
1: Uh, or
0: what do you think is the why of worship, generally speaking?
1: Yeah, well, I guess, of course, two different questions based on two different parts of my life. Um, you know, I, as you ask it, I'm trying to think of how I would answer it personally, but also not say it in a way that, that overrepresents represents a population I don't know, right? meaning the LDS people. Um, I, I, I really struggled with it, honestly. Um, and I know some people might take that and run with it in terms of how, what they think about me. But um, for me, I covenanted to do so. But, I mean, I really was at tension between this idea of personal revelation and, you know, just kind of working my way. Um, I I figured there were virtues that I needed to um, acquire in the church, right? It Going even as painful as it was for me, as shallow as it seemed to be, um, I figured it was still right for me to go and at least try to make a couple thoughtful comments in, mm-hmm. you know, Sunday school or whatever. So, I mean, I, I think part of it was just this sense of obligation. This was my covenant community. Um, and then there would be glimpses, uh, I guess personally, in my personal experience, uh, in the temple where I thought I saw kind of the purpose of life and everything. Um, so, but... And this is something people just have to take my word for it, and maybe they they shouldn't, you know, uh, think much of it. But I I totally feel differently now. It's not a surprise to hear, I'm sure, for yeah. our listeners. Um, I mean, I I need church, and the prime primary reason I go is to worship the Triune God, mm-hmm. to, you know, who made me, who created me, created me to worship, created me with that hole in my heart that can only be filled by Him. Yeah.
0: So, I mean, it does yeah. get down to wh- what is the object of your worship.
1: Absolutely.
0: And, uh, you know, our, our object for our worship, and we believe the entire Bible is a revelation of calling humanity to do this uh, because it's what we were made for. Yeah. But uh, that call is to worship our God. And yeah. not to worship obscurely, but to worship Him because He's made Himself known and so we want to know him and we want to worship him as he has revealed himself in the bible yep. and uh and of course we see throughout uh you know the the bible that it, as sincere as you may be in your worship if the object of your worship is incorrect then it's damnable it's not idolatry. holy it's idolatry yep you know the the all worshipers were sincere yep. i believe you know but it was the wrong God, you know? And so part of why we're drawing out these distinctions is because of the significance of that. When, when we say we have come to worship him and we put that in Emmanuel, we we agree. We need to worship him, but who is that him? Who, who is it? the he? Who is the him? Um, who is the Jesus that the wise men are coming to worship? Uh, and of course, we hope that even in, through our podcast yesterday, you see that um, yes there would be a lot of alignment <laughs> you know pro- probably close to full alignment between credo Christians and LDS when we talk about the historical Jesus um the person you know the human the the life the stories the gospels the the accounts the things that we're going to be walking through over the coming weeks in this New Testament study this is why you know LDS can Can uh, own, operate, record all the stuff for the chosen. You know, the the show about the events of Jesus' life, because, uh, you know, by and large, if all we're doing is painting the picture of this human man and the events and things that he participated in in this world, uh, there's not going to be huge disagreements. But we hope that what you see and know is that the essential fact of who Jesus is as God is the difference between being an idolater or not when you bring yourself
1: to worship him. Mm -hmm. And in, in the biblical mind, every sin is attached to idolatry. If you look at the flow of the argument, Romans one is a key passage, but notice he points out the false worship before the false behavior. And, um, it, it kind of reminds me of, for those uh, philosophy nerds out there that know about Plato's the good mm-hmm. Well, in the Jewish mind, it's the God and every sin of mind and heart flows from false worship in some way. Um,
0: right. Yeah. Um, There's I, uh I don't know if that helps. <laughs> yeah, that's good. And, and as we walk along in the study, even just keeping that question in mind is, we start to approach the first couple of passages and teach the doctrine, Matthew 2, 1 to 12, and Luke 2, 1 to 38. We do have this concept of worship that's brought out. It's, you know, in kind of a background subtle sense because the first thing you're supposed to get out of that text of even the wise men going to worship Jesus and the birth of Jesus and all the accounts of the angels uh, hearing and seeing Jesus in Luke 2 what you're supposed to get out of that according to this Come, Follow Me LDS curriculum is why is it significant that these witnesses of Christ came from various walks of life? And how can we follow their examples? So it starts to zone in immediately on look at the, the, these characters and try to draw out some lessons for yourself. But then it does get to this line where it says, before these witnesses worshipped the Christ child, they sought after him. Okay, So before they went to worship him, they sought after him, which, by the way, um, even as diving into the text a little bit deeper, when the wise men come in Matthew 2 to worship Jesus, the word worshiped as it would have been used in that ancient context is to revere to the extent of falling on your face before him. So there is a, an immediate distinction that's drawn between the worshiper and the one who is being worshipped. And so the imagery is that this one, this baby in uh, in this little house and, you know, nothing good going on uh, Nazareth, you know, um, this baby is drawing these wise men to come and, and probably these really wealthy men to come and fall in their face before him as if, as if they are so lowly and he is so great and awesome and powerful yeah. that he is a king, you know?
1: And, and given ancient views of children, very different from ours yeah. after 2,000 years of Christianity. You see Herod, uh, right? Yeah. The, the text with Herod. Disposable. Mm-hmm. Uh, Going and it and sounds like the children. It, it almost feels like it's coming back. But anyway, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean... I'm sorry to cut off your no, thought. No, 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 you're good. There's there's one other thing that came to mind that I, I probably should have said yeah. just a minute ago. You're going to encounter this in conversation uh, with LDS where they just think our view of heaven is totally boring. Like, what are you going to do? Just holy, holy, holy all day you know, whatever. Like, they'll literally bring up these yeah. sacred passages of Scripture and kind of be like, oh, that's what you think you're going to do all day, you know. We're going to be creating worlds and whatever, you know. Very, it's a very American, very pragmatic, very yeah. gnostic, all combined. Um, and we, and and this is a, I guess, simultaneously a comment about Christians, but also a challenge to them. Every time we get a glimpse into the heavens, the angels are worshiping. Yeah, the prophets are worshiping, and mm-hmm. is that our attitude toward this Jesus? Yeah. Um, is it Jesus, my boyfriend? Is it Jesus my you know Jesus, my buddy, you know, Santa Jesus? Um, no, this is this is the Lord of creation, the Lord of hosts, yeah, incarnate and even as a baby he's is he's, he's no less divine than he is now sitting at the right hand of the Father. And so we need to not just be like, well, you know we no own that point. We want to worship God forever.
0: yep, yeah, this baby is the same person who is depicted in Revelation 5, and it depicts him as the slain lamb who had been slaughtered for the sins of the world and therefore was the only one who was worthy to open the scroll to bring about salvation and fullness to all who would believe in him. And everyone, the multitudes, are gathered around him And they're all singing a new song, saying, this is Revelation 5.19, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to your God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. What is the focus on here? Christ. It is on Jesus. Yeah. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all those in the same to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and glory and honor and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped the the testimony that you need to receive in seeing the example of the characters in these texts that are being drawn to Jesus is that you should worship him as God you should worship him as the only God yeah. the triune God not somebody who's ever going to you know just prop you up and make you like him yeah. but somebody who's utterly distinctly different from you
1: and to the degree that we do become like him it's him that's conforming us into his image. That's right. In Romans 8, all of those are active verbs where God is the subject, yep. not us. Yep. So it's not that we won't change from our sinful state. Uh, it is true God saves us in our sin, but he also saves us from our sin. Yeah. But it's he will conform us to that. That's right. And yeah. you see this inbreaking of this worship of from heaven in the angelic song that we have in this chapter. That's right. And uh, so the angels, I mean, this is the kingdom of God breaking in that we are receiving. We It's not a kingdom we build, um, though there, there's a context in which it's appropriate to say that. It's we are receiving this kingdom in the form yeah. of this child yeah. who is fully God and, and truly man. Yeah.
0: And just a brief, you know, clarity, because Please. you brought it up on heaven, um, Romans 12, 1, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So worship is not just just merely the gathering around the full and undivided focus on seeing and and singing and worshiping Jesus. That is prayer. an essential component of worship, prayer, all that. It's also the way that you live your life in the body that God has provided for you to glorify him. That is an act of worship to offer your life as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to him. And so, you know, we do have LDS people who are like, well, you're just going to be drooling in heaven, you know, doing forever. nothing but singing songs forever how and ever and ever and ever. Yeah. How boring. <laughs> First off, that's going to be the most electric concert that's ever heard <laughs> in the history of humanity. And why wouldn't you want to be there? But secondly, that's not the way it's going to be at all. It's going to be a return to the Garden of Eden. You know, it's going to be a restored creation, a new creation with that same creation mandate. Of course, we won't be fruitful and multiply in the sense of bearing children anymore, but there will be a call to take dominion and to live in our bodies as a living sacrifice every day to the glory of Jesus. And so we don't know exactly what our lives are going to look like in the new heavens and new earth, but... The best idea that we have is that it's going to be a return to the garden.
1: Yes. And isn't it amazing that even the most atheistic political systems assume just that? Think of this lust for utopia. Think of this. I mean, you can be the most materialistic, atheistic, and yet you still are in the streets, right, calling for justice. right. Calling so, for, yeah. I mean, it's in your heart, people. Yeah. So imagine. You know this God. You may not yeah. love him yet,
0: but you know this God. So imagine a society and a world without sin, yeah. without brokenness. Mm-hmm. You know, even, even from my eschatological perspective, yep. uh, this we're, we're going to be living on the same planet. God is just going to reverse every damage that the fall ever did and make it right. Uh, and he's going to set aside forever everyone who is deemed wicked. And uh, that's all of us, which circles back to the point that we were on, which is this statement in the manual, um, before these witnesses worshipped the Christ child, they sought after him. And then it says, what do these accounts suggest about some of the ways that we can seek Christ. It's an important note to make on that comment um, because it says before the witnesses worshipped the Christ, they sought after him. Did they seek after him under their own intuition? Was it their own willing of themselves to go and seek after the Christ child? Or is it necessary that something would have preceded that in order for them to seek him? And here's why I bring that up, because you have very clear passages in the New Testament, like Romans chapter three, which says, No one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. Not a single person in the entire, not a single person in the entire world seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So it's fascinating to think of this idea of like, oh yeah, before they worshiped him. They sought after him. But then you have passages in Romans 3, like no one seeks for God. Everybody has turned aside. So that would include the wise men. That would include Mary. That would include Joseph. That would include all these characters in this text because that's who the passage in Romans 3 is talking about. All have turned aside. So how do we get from that to, you know, before they worship Christ, they sought after him. I mean, you got any thoughts on that, where that's coming from?
1: I mean, I think even the star, whatever this is visually, um, is a good indication that God's at work drawing them right. to himself. I, I think, yeah, I mean, even in the witnesses part of this, where it says, you know, ponder the ways they show their love for the Savior. Um, I mean, it, I guess it's not... Um, Entirely futile to do that, but why? Why not ponder the ways God has shown His love for us in His Son, right? Um, what these people did to seek the Savior. How about how the Savior sought us while we were yet sinners? Christ died for us, it says in Romans. And um, so that that's the angle I was thinking about. But I think even just whatever it was that drew these wise men was something God did uh, primarily rather than what they did.
0: Yeah. I, I uh, was, did you think that hits the <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, hits that's the mark good. or am uh, I crazy? I was thinking even of um, Jesus' words in John 6. Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. And He says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Yeah. It's grace from the beginning it to is. the end. You know, it's not that they sought after Jesus and then worshiped him. Yeah. They became worshipers of Jesus because the Father drew them to Jesus. Mm-hmm. It's his divine initiative yep. that's accomplishing his purposes to draw worshipers to his son mm-hmm. so that his son will see, receive the glory that's due his name.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I think one thing to point out here is that if you don't have a robust doctrine of the fall, and a robust doctrine of sin, um, you're going to miss that. If yeah. you think we're injured in Christ as a what, a life coach, that's one thing. But if we're dead in sin, that takes a new birth. It takes a supernatural initiative of God. That's good.
0: Okay, so Matthew 2, 13 to 23. Um, here's the subheading for that. Here's here is, according to LDS teaching, what you need to get out of this passage. Uh, this is the meaning for you. Think about this and think of how it affects your life. Parents can receive revelation to protect their families, okay? And then in the uh, end of that particular uh, section, it says, this is the follow-up question for people to respond to, how has personal revelation helped us protect our families or other loved ones from danger. Skylar, could you just expand for us on what is meant when we see in LDS literature this idea of receiving revelation and then also this idea of personal revelation?
1: I'll try, and I'll I'll try to be quick. There's a lot to this, and there's a lot that is unsaid about what that can mean and in different positions, in the LDS Church, um, you know, there's there's a very much a personal line of uh, communication that they emphasize, and a priesthood line, and the idea is well, and that that's combined with another concept which I, I briefly mentioned last time, but is actually key to getting this: the Holy Ghost um, for LDS. Is once again the member of the Godhead, right. but who, d- except for some fringe views, um, doesn't have a body yet, mm-hmm. but will. Which, by the way, if you need a body to become a god, and yet one of your one of your gods doesn't have a body, that I think that's an issue. But right. um, but the, the Holy Ghost is in one place at one time, and you, they will say this over in, in manuals, and still LD, a lot of LDS will actually get this wrong. Uh, if you talk to them, they'll they'll confuse Holy Ghost Holy Spirit quite a bit. Um, which for us, it comes from the same word. There's no distinction there, but there is a distinction. Holy Ghost is in one place at one time, right? Um, And Holy Spirit is not. Holy Spirit, um, I'm trying to, it's almost kind of like the force or something uh, like that. And um, so when LDS, LDS think the Holy Ghost can use the Holy Spirit to influence anybody, but they think that they really do emphasize in LDSism the gift of the Holy Ghost that they think they uniquely receive because of the unique priesthood authority they have, mm-hmm. if done in the right way. Right. The ordinances have to be done exactly as prescribed. And if you have this gift and are worthy of guidance, and that's something you'll see is emphasized quite a bit, then you have almost even more immediate access to the promptings of the Holy Ghost Mm -hmm. um, or the Heavenly Father or whatever. Um, And so you can do that personally with personal decisions. If you're a father, you can do that for your family. If you're a bishop over the ward, so it's very much a a centralized system, but there is a decentralized component that Mm -hmm. can sometimes be understated if all your focus is on the you know, head of the church and how centrally focused a lot of this is. Um, so that's why they would say something like only the president slash prophet of the church can receive revelation for the whole church. Right. Um, even though that's, you know, you can point tons of historical holes in that, but that, that is the, the, the view I think of the official line. So why do I bring this up here? I do once again. This is a kind of a personal application that can be kind of lost, right? We, we see this as um, very unique historical events in which Joseph is being warned of what's happening, and we see this kind of redemptive historical flow to the scripture as a whole, but also in time in history. Um, they take it and, and make it a general principle. Um, by which fathers can have some sort of special access to inspiration that's needed for their families, for example. Does yeah. it, does it, was that clear?
0: Yeah, which again, gets to the core of a lot of our disagreement, which is a which is a what we would say a hermeneutical a hermeneutical error, yeah, that uh, LDS make in the way that they read the scriptures. because what this passage is talking about in Matthew 2, uh, of course, Matthew's drawing out, This flight to Egypt that Joseph has, you know, revealed that he needs to take his family down there to protect them. There's this flight to Egypt. Then there's this killing of the children um, Mm -hmm. that are, you know, all in Bethlehem, which, you know, Bethlehem wasn't a huge town, but still tragic, right? A tragic thing that's happening here. And then there's the return to Nazareth. Now here's the significance of this passage, and here is what Matthew is trying to communicate in that passage It's that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of these Old Testament anticipations for a deliverer. He's the deliverer. He's arrived. He's the one that you've been waiting for, the one who is prophesied about in the Old Testament. And so in all of these passages, verse 13 to 15, Joseph leads the family to flee to Egypt. And Matthew refers to Hosea 11, 1 as being fulfilled here, where he says, when Israel, this is in Hosea, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Matthew quotes that passage. And then that chapter if you were to read it in hosea begins or continues with verse 2 and it says the more they were called the more they went away they kept sacrificing to the baals and burning offerings to idols so do you see what hosea is communicating when when israel was a child i loved him that's what god is saying israel was a child i loved him he's talking about the whole nation of israel using this picture of israel being like his child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. I called him out of Egypt. I saved him out of them. And guess what they did? The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and the burning offerings of idols. What Matthew is getting at is Jesus is the faithful one in the way that Israel failed time and time again, Jesus is this new Israel, the true Israel, the perfect representative of the people of God, the one true you know, God-man who is the one who has come as the perfect Israel that was always imperfect. Uh, so Jesus is going to be called out of Egypt just like Israel was called out of Egypt. But guess what? Jesus isn't going to worship the Baals like all of the Israelites did. He's going to be the righteous one. He's going to be the perfect one. He's going to be the one you need to deliver you from your sins, because all you do is keep going back to the Baals. No matter how much God does for you, no matter how much common grace even he extends to you, you keep not seeking him, running away from him, sinning, deceiving, lying, you know, all of the myriad of sins that we commit on a daily basis. Not Jesus. And that's what Matthew's communicating there by bringing up that prophecy. And then you move down to verse 16 to 18 about Herod killing the children. Of course, that's the story of Herod killing just ruthlessly all the children in Bethlehem, trying to destroy them so that, uh, you know, Jesus can't be raised up and become king. And it's tragic. But Matthew, by bringing this up, is calling readers to see Jesus as the Messiah who brings hope to a broken people who are in spiritual exile. That's why Matthew refers to Jeremiah 31 five, which says, A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. So the idea is exile is going to lead to this devastating judgment because you have sinned and rebelled against the Lord your God, and it's going to be so devastating that adults aren't going to survive, children aren't even going to survive. It is going to bring wreckage on your life, right? Uh, this, this kind of pre-damnation, uh, you know, that, that's the idea of judgment. There, there's going to be a final judgment that's far worse than anything we see happen in the exile, but this shows what we deserve because of our sin. We're sinners, and therefore we deserve the judgment of God, and we deserve to be cast away in exile. Then remember, when New Testament authors use an Old Testament reference, they rarely intend the audience to focus just on that one verse as in the context. So Matthew isn't just trying to draw your attention to the one verse. He's drawing you to a larger idea. And you know what's in Jeremiah 31. This message about God bringing this rebellious Israel that was cast into exile He's going to bring them out. He's going to deliver them. He's going to establish a new covenant with them. And Jesus, of course, the God-man, comes to be the final and complete deliverance for Israel. We could do the same thing with the next passage. I'm not going to continue expanding on that because we just don't have the time. But you get the idea. You need to see what the author's communicating, and it's far more glorious to see what they're saying about this this uh, arrival of Jesus, the Messiah who's come to save you, that's far more glorious, and that's good news for sinners in a way that this constant, you know, you can receive revelation for your own family. Yeah. Um, I, I I don't need that. What my family needs is the Jesus who's already been revealed, you know, the one that came to save us from our sins. Um, because this this life, you know, Uh, It it is going to be depressing and pointless and meaningless and hard uh, if I never come to see Jesus for who he is, because I'm going to feel either, like you said, even in the last episode, like I never measure up. So it's going to lead me to despair or somehow I'm going to convince myself I'm doing good and it's going to lead me to be prideful. Either way, I'm in trouble. Mm
1: -hmm. Right. Even when we do come to him, it's going to be hard in times of depression and all that. Yeah. But we still come back to him. It's um it reminds me of that prayer at the end of is it Habakkuk 3 mm. when here's this the promised land being ravaged by Babylon and Habakkuk is saying what is, God where are you God where are you but in the end he says but you're God so and who else do I trust yeah and of course this was hundreds of years before as you said, yeah, the new Israel, the new corporate servant, all these things. And, it, you know, these, these themes, um, something that's interesting between the Gospels is it's often the same themes but communicated differently. So that whole Exodus theme, deliverance theme, is found even in um, Mary's hymn. If yeah. you look at the Exodus, when they come on the other side, Miriam, and of course Miriam is the same name as Mary, uh, sings a hymn, of deliverance, you know, praising God, their savior for deliverance. And here Mary is uh, praising God for deliverance in this new exodus that's come in the form of this baby. That's good.
0: I'm, I'm curious, Skylar, are there any other notes uh, that you would, you would, just even as you were looking at Matthew 2 and Luke 2, that you're just like, this is such a beautiful truth that's just totally missed in the Come Follow Me curriculum?
1: There's, there's too many. Um, I, I would say pay special attention to the hymns. I think there's so much wrapped up in these. And um, just as a point of, you know, uh, Christian history, um, in John Calvin services in Geneva, um, the church would sing the song of Simeon after every communion service. Um, this I don't know how to pronounce it exactly. Nunc Dimittis. Um I just love this story because once again, he's waiting for the Messiah, right? But of course the Messiah comes to him with that that theme, you know, um, God come to us, God with us, rather than us, we do our part, he does his part. He came down in the mud to save us sinners, even when we were so rebellious we didn't even see our own need. Right. Um, Lord. Now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. And and that's that. Don't read too quickly past this. Do you believe this? Hmm. Is Christ your salvation? Holy, fully, truly, right? no ifs, ands, buts, asterisks that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. A light for revelation to the Gentiles, and for glory to your people Israel. Um, I just, I, I think that's one of my favorites in this chapter.
0: And one of the other key themes, uh, even in verse fourteen, uh, of Luke two, with the shepherds and the angels, "Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, peace among those with whom He is pleased." Jesus came so that God could be pleased with you. Mm -hmm. And without him, again, just look for this in the Bible. It is every page. Without him, you will not be at peace with God. And your life will not be at peace either. Your soul will be restless. And uh, you won't know how to deal with difficult circumstances when they come your way. You'll scramble for whatever is the next best thing, but it'll leave you empty. Uh, you'll you'll find your life in more wreckage than you ever thought you would. Um, or your life will go okay, but there's just an overwhelming sense of uneasiness and emptiness. Uh, and that's because you're not at peace with God, because the only people who are at peace with God are those with whom he is pleased. And if all do not seek for God, he's not pleased with anyone except Jesus because Jesus was the perfectly pleasing one. And the whole point of Jesus arriving on the scene is to be a substitute, to take our punishment and to give us his righteousness so that we could be clothed with his righteousness and be at peace with God. So the good news is the announcement that you can be at peace with God, not because of your own performance, but because this baby has come to be the one who was perfectly righteous. And that's what Luke is drawing out from the very beginning. His parents are taking him to the temple. He's obeying the law. He's coming as one, Galatians 4.4, who was born under the law so that he could uphold the law in perfection unlike any other human that ever lived. Why? So that he could become the curse for us when he hung on the tree and could make us righteous and uh make us sons of god in him. Uh because that's the only way we become sons of god is if yeah. we're in the the son of god. So look for the announcements of Jesus. You got anything else there or can, do we need to
1: I I think I'm, put a I'm bow on I I yeah. do I
0: do just want to leave off with this one last point. Um this comes from the the individual and family manual. I did read this already. Jesus Christ was born in humble circumstances. It's highlighting Luke 2, 1-7 says, Although Jesus Christ had glory with God the Father before the world was, he was willing to be born in lowly circumstances and live among us on earth. As you read Luke 2, 1-7, ponder what this account of his birth teaches you about him. Try to identify details or insights in this story that you hadn't noticed before. How does noticing these things affect your feelings towards him? I would encourage you, Um, whether you're uh, a credo Christian or LDS, to do really pretty much exactly what that little section says you should do. Uh, It's one of the few sections that actually encourages you to do what we would say is the right thing, which is to look at the account and consider what it teaches you about Jesus And consider what it teaches you about what he's come to do for you. You know, I I shared with you before the episode, Skylar, that I was really moved to hear your testimony and how you aren't doing what many other people who are leaving the LDS church are doing, where they just leave Jesus altogether. As you were searching, you knew Jesus had to be a part of it. And I do think that there's a lot of LDS people out there um, who, for whatever reason, they're 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 not seeing Christ for who he truly is. Um, But there's some sort of a love there for Jesus, at least in his historical person. Mm -hmm. But boy, to understand what he's actually
1: done for you, it changes everything. Absolutely. And my encouragement, my plea, would be to love Jesus more than your view of him. Mm -hmm. See, when we, we talk... Jesus, we have a text outside of ourselves and languages apart from ourselves. We're not leaning in. Christianity is not about leaning in. Uh, LDS and New Age and a lot of America is uh, a home to many of these, but it's not just America, of course. We're all Hindus now, but um, you know, it's not about inside stuff. It's about outside stuff. And I would say that the way you can test if the Jesus of your imaginings is the real Jesus is what we have here. And I would just encourage you to be consistent in that and, and follow the real Jesus instead of your view of him, yeah. that even if you may be emotionally attached to it.
0: Yeah, the one the one revealed in the historically reliable Gospels, exactly. That's who he is. Mm-hmm. That's good. I think we need to end it there. So, cue the music. Next week, join us. We're going to be in John 1. It's going to be a doozy. Looking forward to it. Thanks for listening. Like, subscribe, share. Do all that stuff. We'll see you later.